Father, fixed on Christ, can we truly say and sing, hallelujah, what a Savior. We are amazed by your love and by your grace to us in Jesus Christ. We have sung songs of praise to you. You have heard from us and now we ask to hear from you. May your Holy Spirit work through me now as I seek to represent your word to your church. Show yourself strong through my many weaknesses. Accomplish your perfect will in this place at this time. We have not gathered to hear the rambling thoughts of a man, but rather to hear from you through your preaching of, of your word. We submit to you our attention and our obedience and protect us from distraction and from misunderstanding. Make your saints more like Jesus today and save the lost as we all encounter the good news of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. What a blessing it is to see you all this morning. Good morning to you all. Uh, what a privilege it is that we can gather this morning uh, in the name of Jesus Christ. And we do so without any kind of fear of, of persecution. We declare from the rooftops that Jesus is King of kings and He is Lord of lords. What a privilege it is that we get to do that this morning. I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 verses 1 and 2 will be our text for today. It has frequently been said that Paul's letter to the Ephesians uh, can be broken into two different sections. Uh, the first three chapters are referred to as the more theological portion of the letter, and this is where Paul is, is writing in the indicative mood. He's laying forth uh, amazing truths about God, indescribably glorious truths about who God is and, and what God has done, uh, particularly in Christ. And, and then in the last three chapters of the letter, uh, the, the chapters that are more uh, often referred to as practical chapters, um, this is where people, this is what people call the good stuff. And this is where Paul switches the mood from, from the indicative and he, and he switches over to the imperative. He gives us commands. In the fourth chapter alone, uh, there were dozens and dozens of imperatives that we saw uh, from Paul to the Ephesians. And, and that contrasts with those first three chapters where there were only just a handful of imperatives. Several times uh, over the past few months, uh, people have come up to me and have asked me, hey, are we finishing Ephesians anytime soon? Um, and it seems like they're wanting to get to the good stuff. And while they didn't come out and say it, I think the husbands were really wanting to get to that part where it says that wives should uh, respect and be submissive to their husbands. And I think the wives were really wanting to get to that part where it says that husbands should love their wives like Christ to obey the church. And I think the kids probably were excited to get to that part where it says that fathers are not to provoke their children to anger, right? It's, it's like... Uh, Fred Savage in the, in the Princess Bride asking the grandpa, when, when are we going to get to the good stuff? Um, but when it comes to the Word of God, uh, the truth is that it is all good stuff. Amen? Uh, it's all good stuff. Every word of Scripture was breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, uh, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, uh, equipped for every good work. 
And there are several problems as we think about um, trying to make a distinction between a theological part of the letter and a more practical uh, part of the letter. Uh, The first problem is suggesting that the portion that's packed with theological truth is somehow impractical. On the contrary, our knowledge of God uh, greatly impacts the practice of our worship of God. Uh, The greater our knowledge of God, the greater our worship of God. Uh, We'll take a closer look at that truth even this morning, Uh, but Paul was praying in the first part of his letter for the readers of his letter to to have a greater knowledge, to to comprehend what is the length and the breadth and the height and the depth of the the love of Christ, Uh, to know this love which is unknowable, it surpasses knowledge, and yet Paul is praying for his readers to know it. He prayed that they would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened to know the hope to which they had been called in Christ. The greater our comprehension of of the immeasurable power of God toward us who believe, the greater our worship will be of God. Uh, Secondly, uh, Paul never really steps away from communicating theological truth. Even in this portion where it's, it's more practical or more relevant, as people would call it, he's still laying out truth about Christ, and and he's really glorifying God in all of it. Uh, He didn't stop magnifying God, and instead he continues to point his readers to the cross. Uh, He didn't have one pen for theological truths and and then switch pens for practical truths. No, he used that same pen throughout, and we get to see that even in our text this morning. So let's look at our text, Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, verses 1 and 2, but we're going to start by reading back what we studied last week, uh, chapter 4, verse 25, and we'll see even the connection between the passage that we studied last week and and our passage for this morning. Follow along as I read aloud. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through chapter 5, verse 2. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the word of God. May God bless the reading of his word. As we read through Ephesians 5, verses 1 to 2, we recognize that these two verses were not written in isolation. Uh, They're tied to that previous section uh, with that very important word, therefore. And they're grounded also upon the truth that that Paul had already laid forward in the first part of his letter. In Ephesians 5, Paul is preparing uh, to tell his readers uh, very relevant ways that they are to live out the Christian faith. Uh, He's going to move on to tell husbands 
that they ought to love their wives as Christ loved the church. He's going to tell wives that they ought to love and respect their husbands and children to obey their parents and, and servants to work for their masters. But it would be completely pointless for Paul to give any of that instruction apart from the truth of the cross of Christ. And Paul's goal in writing this letter is not to make people more moral. Uh, Paul's point, the, the goal of his writing is to pay, make people more like Christ. And so he continues to point them back to Christ. That's what he's doing in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. St. Augustine said that the cross is the pulpit from which God preaches his love to the world. That's beautiful, isn't it? The, the cross is God's pulpit, or the pulpit from which God preaches his love to the world. Commentator David Pryor said that we never move on from the cross. We only move into a more profound understanding of the cross. It's my hope as we examine this text this morning that we will indeed move into a more profound understanding of the cross. If you want to take notes, uh, you can write down point number one in your sermon outline, which is imitate God. Imitate God. We get that from the first part of verse 1 there, where it says, therefore be imitators of God. We start with what seems at first blush uh, an impossible command to obey, right? Nowhere else in the Bible does it say that we are to be imitators of God. Now, Paul had told the Corinthian church to be imitators of him. In 1 Corinthians 4, verses 16 to 17, he says, I urge you then be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, uh, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Then later in that same letter, Paul wrote, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul also reminded the Thessalonians that they had become imitators of him and, and other church leaders and even of Jesus as they received the word in much affliction uh, with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that they became an example that others would even be able to imitate as well. Then the writer of Hebrews encouraged his readers to imitate other believers. But nowhere else in all of Scripture do we see this charge to imitate God. The word that Paul uses there is, is the Greek word from which we get our word to mimic. Now, we are to mimic God the Father. William Barclay calls this the highest standard in the world. Alexander McLaren said it is the sum of all duty. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones said that this is Paul's supreme argument, uh, the highest level of all in doctrine and in practice, the ultimate ideal. And so we find ourselves looking at Ephesians 5 verses 1 and 2, and we don't see two random verses that were simply picked out for this day, but what we see, what we find ourselves uh, doing is examining that really the pinnacle of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And this is really the pinnacle of, of all of Paul's writing, if you think about it. There's, there's no higher peak to which we can ascend other than to being imitators of God. And so how could we possibly reach such a high standard? How, how is it possible for us to imitate God who is so high above us? Uh, his thoughts are so far above our thoughts we're told that his ways are, are not our ways, so how could we possibly imitate him? First of all, uh, I think we need to recognize that it is impossible to mimic God unless we have a right understanding of who God is. Uh, 
and what God has done. This is why we find this command to be imitators of God in the fifth chapter of Ephesians rather than in the first chapter of Ephesians. This is why Paul began his letter by such, uh, writing down such profound truth about who God is and, and what God has done. And then, and only then, does he give this charge to his readers to be imitators of God. Before we make any efforts toward becoming imitators, uh, we better make sure that we have a biblical understanding of who God is. The reality is that our natural tendency uh, is to create a God in our own image, uh, to create a God that we are comfortable worshiping. Over and over again, we hear people say, I- I'm not willing to worship a God who, then blank, and you can fill in the blank. I'm not willing to worship a God who allows people to suffer and die of cancer. I'm not willing to worship a God who says that premarital sex or extramarital sex or, or homosexual sex is wrong. I'm not willing to worship a God who lets bad things happen to good people. So in their unwillingness to worship a God who offends their sensitivities, people create a God of their own who is more palatable to their likings, more suitable to their desires. This is not a new phenomenon. John Calvin wrote about the same thing in the 16th century. He said, man's mind full as it is of pride and boldness, dares to imagine a God according to its own capacity. As it sluggishly plods, indeed is overwhelmed by the crassest ignorance, it conceives an unreality and an empty appearance as God. We have that same pride and boldness today. We just package it a little bit differently in our day and age. If social justice is, is important to us, we find a way of, of making the infinite God of the Bible and, and bringing him down, narrowing him down into a little social justice box. Uh, if material wealth and physical health is important to us, and then we create a God who uh, wants nothing more than for us to be healthy and wealthy and wise. I heard about a, a female bishop who recently performed a baptism, and when she was doing so, she referred to God using feminine pronouns. Um, if we're confused about gender role, if we're confused about gender identity, uh, then it's easy for us to create a God who uh, matches our desires and even fits into our confusion. If personal happiness is, is our highest possible priority, then we will create a God in our own eyes who would turn his eyes uh, if we happen to divorce our spouse and went after a, a new model who might make us happier. After all, God wouldn't want us to be unhappy, would he? The, Paul doesn't allow for such folly of thought. Uh, the imitator of God must imitate the one true God, the only living God, the God who has revealed himself to us in the pages of his word and in his son, Jesus Christ. Perhaps part of the difficulty in obeying this command also comes from right thoughts about the attributes of God. Theologians make a a distinction between communicable attributes of God, uh, those that he shares with uh, us, and, and then there are incommunicable attributes of God as well, those things that are set alone, set apart for God and for God alone. Let's first consider just a few 
of the incommunicable, incommunicable attributes of God. Easy for you to say. Uh, oftentimes, uh, when people study theology, uh, they start with the attributes of God's independence or His aseity. Uh, God is self-existent. Uh, he is the uncreated creator. God exists not because someone gave life to him, but because he has always existed. There has never been a time when God was not. This sets God apart from everything that has an, or, that has an origin. That includes you and me. We cannot and, and we will not be like God in his self-existence. Not only is God self-existent, but he's also self-sufficient. God has no needs. God is not dependent upon anything or anyone for his existence. We, on the other hand, have more needs than we realize. Uh, we need our, the synapses in our brains to fire in the right order at the right time to make sure that our heart is pumping and, and that the blood is flowing and, and that there's an exchange of oxygen in our lungs. And, and we need this every minute of every hour of every day. Uh, we need things like love and, and food and, and shelter and companionship. What happens when we don't get the things that we need? Well, first, we become very aware of the difference between a need and a want, uh, and then secondly, we die without the things that we need. God is eternal. He's immutable. He's unchanging. We noted in God's self-existence that He has always existed and always will exist. That is not true of us. There was a time when we were not, uh, and we have all changed consider considerably from, from the beginning of our existence. That's true of old people like me, and it's, it's true of even the youngest in, in the sanctuary this morning. God is unchanging, though. He is fully perfect and complete, and He, he always has been, and He always will be. In addition to God's aseity, His eternality, His immutability, we can also add all of the omni-attributes of God. Uh, God is omnipotent, uh, which means that He is all-powerful. Contrary to the name it and claim it movement, uh, contrary to what Oprah might tell you, uh, you cannot speak anything into existence, right? Uh, the power of positive thinking, uh, the secret of, of attraction, uh, none of that will enable you to speak a unicorn in the, into existence, right? Try it. It won't work. But God created everything that's in a universe that we still haven't been able to measure out, and, and He created it with the power of His Word, and He did so out of absolutely nothing. Uh, you and I, we struggle to open a bag of chips, right? <laughs> I think it's safe to say that we do not share in the omnipotence of God. God is omnipresent, which means He's everywhere. Uh, we, on the other hand, are, are finite creatures. Uh, even when we get our glorified bodies, we will still remain finite. We won't ever have the ability to be everywhere at once. We are finite and always will be. God is omniscient. This means that God knows all things. Uh, he's not learning or adapting as time goes by. His knowledge is already complete. Uh, we, on the other hand, will spend eternity continuing to learn. Finally, we must make note of, of God's perfection. God is perfectly holy. God is perfectly just and, and perfectly good. Not only is He holy and just and good, but He's the sum total of all 
conceivable perfections. Richard Mayhew put it like this, God is absolutely perfect, disturbed by nothing within himself and encumbered by nothing outside himself. I think it probably goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, We do not share in God's perfection, right? Theologically speaking, we are what is referred to as a hot mess. Uh, We we are full of imperfections. So why would Paul tell us to mimic God when it is clear that we are so unlike God in so many ways? Even though God did not share with us many of the attributes that make him God, he did share with us some attributes in which we should walk as imitators of God. These are the communicable attributes of God, things like justice and wisdom, faithfulness, kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiveness, and love. Just like a son cannot do all the things that the father can do, and just like a daughter cannot do everything that the mom can do, this doesn't stop children from imitating their parents. And Paul uses this word picture by telling his readers to become imitators of God as beloved children. Believers in Jesus have been born again, and we have been adopted as children of God. Paul talked about this at the beginning of his letter. All the way back in Ephesians 1, verses 4 to 5, we're told that God chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. The Apostle John marveled at this reality in his first letter. 1 John 3, 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has for us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Just as children imitate their earthly parents, so we're called to imitate our Heavenly Father. I remember when I was a kid, uh, there were a few occasions when my dad would take me to his work, and several of his co-workers, most of his co-workers would always say something like, you know, you are the spitting image of your dad. You look just like your dad. And I remember the, the pride that would bubble up inside of me, uh, that people, when they looked at me, that, that they would see my dad. It's an amazing thing. And this also happens even with adopted children. I've had people tell me that my son is beca- looking more and more like me. And I was like, well, that's interesting because <laughs> he's adopted. But they said, well, no, it, it's his mannerisms. He, he does a lot of the same things that you do. Uh, and this is a, a really wild thing. This is our goal. Uh, Think about it. Uh, If somebody who you didn't know came up to you and would tell you that you look exactly like your Father in heaven, when when they see you, that they would see Christ in you. That's the goal of Paul's teaching. That's the goal of his writing. It's not that we would be more moral, that we would do certain things and avoid other things, but rather he wants us to be more like Christ. Christ. That is the goal. So when we look at this passage in its context, it's clear that Paul had a very specific attribute of God in mind when he said, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Look at verse 2 with me. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Point number two in your outline, walk in love. Walk in in love. Structurally speaking, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 are, are actually part of that previous paragraph 
that we had already looked at. They're tied directly to that last verse in chapter 4. If you read it together, you kind of get that flow of Paul's thoughts. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We imitate God by walking in love. And the love that we walk in is, is not an ethereal rainbows and puppy dogs kind of love. Uh, the love that we're to walk in is a, it's a forgiving love first. It starts with the knowledge that we have been forgiven much in Christ. And this is why Paul told his readers that at one time we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. And this is why Paul reminded his readers that at one time we were far off, having no hope and without God in the world. We were brought near by the blood of Christ. This is why Paul told his believing readers no longer to walk like we used to walk in the futility of our minds and in the hardness of our hearts with darkened understanding, being callous, but instead having put off that old self and, and having put on the new self, we are to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. James Montgomery Boyce said this link between God's forgiveness of us and our forgiveness of others is important because it is only through knowing ourselves to be forgiven that we are set free to forgive others lovingly. And that makes sense, doesn't it? If, if, if we have the mindset that we actually weren't that bad, that we haven't been forgiven much, uh, we are going to be far more reluctant to f- extend forgiveness to others. If we think of ourselves more highly than we ought to, uh, we are more likely to withhold forgiveness of those who have sinned against us. I was reading through Isaiah 40 uh, this past week in my devotional readings, and I was really struck by God's view of mankind as recorded in in Isaiah 40. Listen to God's word uh, from his prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 40 verses 6 and 7 says, All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. Flower of the field, that sounds nice, right? Uh, The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Then down in verse 15, he says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Verse 17, All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Verse 22, it says that it is God who sits above the circle of the earth and and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness, grass, a drop from a bucket, dust, nothing, less than nothing, emptiness. Throw in Romans 3 on top of that, and and we get a pretty good picture of our lowly state and our need for forgiveness. 
The Word of God does not allow us to have a high view of ourselves. Rather than being like the Pharisee in Luke 18 who who was thanking God that he wasn't like other men, uh, we are called to be like that tax collector who who wouldn't even look up to heaven, uh, but instead kept his head bowed and, and he beat his breast and he said, God be merciful to me, a sinner. The love that we are told to walk in is a forgiving love. And the only way that we can forgive others is by understanding how much we have been forgiven in Christ. God takes sin so seriously that he deals with our sin at the cross. And Paul reminds us of that this morning. It's it's only by believing in the sufficiency of Christ's work on the cross that we can experience the forgiveness that we need so desperately. And in turn, that will free us to extend forgiveness to others. Not only are we to walk in a forgiving love, but we're also to walk in a giving love. We see that in verse 2. Look there again. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The giving nature of love is, is most clearly seen at the cross of Calvary. This is where Christ loved us and, and gave himself up for us. I encourage you to write down these references and meditate upon these passages in the week to come to help you think about the giving nature of Christ's love for us. John 3.16, John 3.16, of course, a very familiar verse for most of us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And John 15, uh, verses 13 to 14 Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Those are Christ's words to his disciples, of course. And then in Ephesians 5, verse 25, passage that we'll get to, I don't know, maybe next year. Um, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Galatians 2.20, we looked at that last week. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. John 10, verses 14 to 18, I am the good shepherd. This is Christ speaking again. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up. This charge I have received from my Father. There are literally dozens upon dozens of more passages we could look at, including 1 John 3, uh, 1 John 4, great passages to camp out in. Uh, And it's possible to rank these passages, of course, but I think Philippians 2, uh, 5 through 8, uh, gives us a greater understanding of what Paul was talking about regarding that giving nature of Christ's love. Philippians 2, verses 5 to 8, "...have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who..." Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born 
in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As we look at our passage for this morning, we cannot overlook uh, two incredibly important words for us uh, in Ephesians 5, verse 2. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. For us. This speaks to the substitutionary nature of Christ's love. It's a forgiving love. It's a giving love. It's also a substitutionary love. For us can be understood that Jesus gave himself up for us uh, like a gift is for us or, or that it is for our benefit. Um, but it can also be understood, and I think this is the right understanding in this passage, that Jesus gave himself up in place of us. Uh, it was a substitutionary atonement. This is Paul's description of substitutionary atonement. I think it's Paul's meaning because he goes on to, to refer to Jesus as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. On the cross, Jesus gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. In the Levitical sacrificial system, uh, only those sacrifices that were without blemish would be acceptable to God. Leviticus 22, verses 20 to 21 says, You shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be accepted or acceptable for you. And when anyone offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a vow or, or as a free will offering from the herd or from the flock, to be accepted, it must be perfect. There shall be no blemish in it. The same was true of the Passover lamb. In order for the Passover lamb to be accepted, it, was, it, had, it had to be, a, uh, or as a substitute, it had to be uh, without blemish. Exodus chapter 12, verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish. So if the penalty for sinners was to be executed on a substitute, that substitute was required to be without spot, without blemish. It was required to be perfect. Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb, uh, and he is the fulfillment of all the Levitical sacrifices. That's the language that Paul is using here in Ephesians 5.2, a, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. It points us all the way back to Leviticus, back to the burnt offerings and, and the grain offerings and the peace offerings and the sin offerings and the trespass offerings, all of which find their fulfillment in Christ. In order for Jesus to have been an acceptable sacrifice on our behalf, he had to be spotless, without blemish. And so he was. He alone met the standard to which we were all called to live. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Jesus, having lived a life without sin, willingly laid down his perfect life for us as a sacrifice to God. And his resurrection, his ascension, are evidence to us that God found that sacrifice to be pleasing. It was acceptable to God. On our behalf. And so we are the benefactors of Christ dying on our behalf. As believers in Jesus, now we can truly sing His robes for mine. I'm so glad that Pastor Steve picked out that song this morning. His robes for mine. A wonderful exchange. Clothed in my sin, Christ suffered neath God's rage. 
draped in his righteousness, I'm justified. In Christ I live, for in my place he died. This is the blessed truth of which we must remind ourselves every single day. This is the gospel. If we find ourselves unwilling or or reluctant to to love and to forgive others, uh, then it's clear that we are not imitating God. We are not being good mimics of our heavenly Father. When the Apostle Peter was was learning what it meant to be a follower of Jesus, he, he asked Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? How did Jesus respond? Peter, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times, or 70 times seven times. We will be wronged in this life. People will hurt us. They will sin against us. Friends, enemies, loved ones, co-workers will say and do things that will cause us pain. It will happen. Some of us experience this reality every single day. How many times do we forgive those who sin against us? Well, we have to ask ourselves, how many times has God forgiven us? It's been said that we are never more like God than when we forgive. And I think that's the big truth that Paul is conveying here. And it's one of the great truths that is sown throughout all of the New Testament. If we are to imitate God and to walk in love, to live in the love of Christ, it will be evident in the way that we extend love and forgiveness to others. This really brings home Jesus' new commandment that he gave to his followers in John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. In closing, I'll just say that we cannot imitate what we do not know. In order to imitate God, we must know God. We cannot mimic him without understanding who he is and and what he's done. We must spend time with God in prayer. We must spend time with God in his word. We must spend time with God in worship. Only by growing in our knowledge of God will we be able to imitate him. Does that make sense? We cannot mimic what we don't know. Let's pray that his Holy Spirit will enable us to do just that. Father God, you've given us a tremendous command, one that we cannot possibly obey without your Holy Spirit working in us. Your call is not for us to be better versions of ourselves, more moral versions of ourselves. Rather, you have willed that we would be imitators of you, that we would be growing in Christ-likeness, that we would love and forgive others as you have loved and forgiven us in Christ. Father, we ask that you would keep our eyes fixed on Christ as we seek to live lives that are worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Perhaps there are some who are truly hearing the good news of Jesus Christ for the first time this morning. 
Father, I ask that you would grant them repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ. Would you impress upon them their need for salvation and and help them to see that there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's only by turning from sin and believing in Jesus that we can be saved, and this is only by your grace. So we ask that you would show yourself gracious today by sanctifying your saints and by saving the lost. We ask this in the name of Jesus and for the sake of your glory. Amen. Amen. Well, before I offer up our benediction, I I just want to give you men a quick reminder uh, to pick up a copy of Jim George's book, uh, One Minute Insights for Men on your way out. Uh, Pastor Jim did mention that uh, inside the book there are no pictures, uh, so um, sorry guys, but it is a short book. We should be able to get through this, right? So uh, make sure you pick up a copy. Even if you're not a dad yet, uh, it is a gift from Pastor Jim from the church uh, to you for, for you guys who are 18 or older. Uh, please make sure you grab a copy of that. Now, please stand with me as I offer up our benediction. My beloved brothers and sisters, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people. Uh, Instead, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Amen.